I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And the work of an artist, autobiographical or not, is a reflection of where they are in their life at any given time, what their creative influences are, what's affecting them personally, what their beliefs might be or how those beliefs may be changing, just to name a few. And so over time, an artist's body of work becomes a kind of map that traces the twists and curves of an ever-evolving throughline of inspiration and introspection. Our guest this week takes a brief break from his tour to reflect on his music career and the interwoven intersections of his life and his art. Joe Sumner is an English singer and songwriter, performing both with his band Fiction Plane over the last 20 years and more recently as a solo artist. His debut solo album, Sunshine in the Night, is due to be released later this year. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure, Michael. How are you doing? You know, I'm doing quite well. It's just another sunny day in Los Angeles. We don't really have seasons here, as you know, but I'm enjoying myself. How about you? Very good. I'm in Leipzig, also enjoying myself. There's definitely, we had four seasons in one day today. Sunny day. As soon as the shadows started to get along, it was freezing and we might get snow, but I'm going to leave before we get snow because I'm on tour. That brings a whole new meaning to staying in the four seasons. <laughs> yeah, we're also not staying in the four seasons. I'll make that very clear. <laughs> this is the one, maybe one and a half seasons. To get us started, as I was researching for this interview, I thought of a quote from a 1946 book called Confessions of a Story Writer, in which Paul Gallico, the author, writes, quote, it is only when you open your veins and bleed onto the page a little that you establish contact with your reader, end quote. And this quote, this sentiment, I think, kind of applies to all art, in my humble view, that if you are to make contact, authentic, penetrating connection with an audience, you have to risk vulnerability by offering something true. And if there is a through line I could find in your work, Joe, from your first four albums with your band Fiction Plane to your upcoming solo album, Sunshine in the Night, it is that you take that risk. And that's one of the topics I'd love to discuss with you today. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you find that to be the case with my work. I think I do spend a great deal of effort and time and procrastination and <laughs> postponed finishing dates in order to really only talk about the truth through my music. Well, procrastination seems to be a through line in all artists as well. It seems to be something we all have in common. <laughs> 100%. So who made that quote? That's a really great quote. I didn't catch the name. Yeah, it's been attributed to several people, but I believe the first time it appeared was by Paul Gallico okay. in his 1946 book, Confessions of a Story Writer. Very cool. I like that a lot. Yeah, so you definitely, it really does help to put some blood on the page, as they say. It really makes the connection. It's a sacrifice. It means the stakes are higher. It means that you're really dealing with reality there. And I think that can also be maybe not gamed, but you find as culture moves on, people increasingly go straight for the blood on the page as the main act without the writing or the creative process. So it has become slightly reductio ad absurdum. In that sense, you know, reality TV is all about this, where you just throw your every waking movement onto the screen and that's how you gain attention and, and connection. But point taken, in art, I believe that you're right. You've got to really get in there and show some skin. And I think people can, over time, tell the difference between, to keep the scory metaphor going, between real blood and the kind that you buy at a Halloween store. You know, like when you're constantly exposing yourself on TikTok or you know, social media, there's a certain point where 
you're not really being authentic, but it's kind of a faux authenticity. I think a lot of people try to muster because they understand that people are looking for real authentic connection, but they have to manufacture it at a certain point. So I think that there is a real difference there between being authentically vulnerable and trying to, like you were saying, game the system with kind of a faux vulnerability, which I think over time people can tell the difference. A hundred percent. Well, maybe they can, maybe they can't. I don't know. The market will decide. But as an artist, I can certainly say that I do really try to make it clear to myself when I've I've spilled the blood, I've told the truth. And you know what? The next day I might not be feeling particularly inspired or emotional. And that day I'm not going to sing and I'm not going to express myself to anyone because there's nothing there. The only reason I would do that is to sort of maintain some following or some you know, momentum career-wise. And I just, that's a child I will not sacrifice to the gods. Yes, we will save the child sacrifice for another day. That's my next project. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, you heard it here first, folks. But, you know, I do think thematically that can take us into the next question because speaking of children, you were born into a creative family to a Northern Irish mother, actress, Frances Tomalty, and English father, musician Sting. So I imagine you had to have been surrounded by art and creativity fairly regularly as a child. But it wasn't until the fall of 1991, I think just before your 15th birthday, when a certain generation-defining song came out that you decided to pursue music. And I'd love for you to share that moment with us, you know, and what it was about that song that kind of changed your life forever. Why it was Joe Sumner at 14 who decided to pursue music and not earlier. Right. Yeah. So as a kid, I grew up pretty much despising music as it was presented to me. There was two sort of options, which one was the kind of piano teacher with a cane telling you to sit up straight. (laughs) I rejected that. And the other was pop music world where you kind of sell your sexuality and dance around in incredibly embarrassing ways. (laughs) So those are the two things that, that was the sea I was swimming in. It was the 80s. Yeah, it was the 80s. Oh my God. I mean, people with their hair and their crazy like red leather pants and stuff, it just didn't appeal to me in any way. I was a very shy, quiet, nerdy, video games, Mm. coding, that kind of thing. Me and my friends wore, you know, the most unfashionable clothes possible. And I kind of walked around rejecting anything to do with that and also anything to do with music in a sort of more formal sense. So literally, my goal was to be a video game tester or something, some kind of designer of video games. And I could just do that and not have to deal with anything else. And then, as you mentioned, Smells Like Teen Spirit popped on the radio, the Nirvana song. And it just, I think maybe two days later, I was in a band. And that was it. That's amazing. What was it in that moment? I mean, because a two-day turnaround like that, to have that switch flipped, what was it about that song? It had all the sort of raw, visceral feelings of a teenager, like it, mm. and it was the right time as a 14-year-old sort of <laughs> depressed, stinky kid. That's, it was everything that it represented me perfectly, and it got me at the right time, and it sort of gave me a purpose immediately. I can't really explain it more than that. No, I totally get it. I thought that's it. And suddenly that was the groove that I could dance to and I could move my body and I could express myself. And I said, right, we have a band. I found, you know, suddenly, suddenly everybody was a musician. Suddenly everybody played guitar or drums or whatever. And there was places to play shows. And I was like, okay, we're going to do this. It was as, it was as quick as that. And, you know, looking back on it, there wasn't really more to it. It was just done. And is Bleach still your favorite Nirvana album? 
Bleach is absolutely my favorite Nirvana album. You know, part of me wishes that I could have discovered Bleach first and been one of those cool people that knew everything before it was cool. But I failed at that test. But when I listen to Nevermind, now I find it as it is, you know, a very carefully and brilliantly constructed piece of commercial art. And that's amazing. Now it doesn't connect to me as much. Mm -hmm. And the Bleach album, I can still listen to it on my own or with people and it just absolutely crushes the stone of my soul into submission. And it really contains the pain and emotion that is still sort of deep inside me. It really is an exposed nerve, that album. I remember reading in the book Heavier Than Heaven, which was about Kurt Cobain's life and about Nirvana the band and its arc, that I think Kurt was similarly kind of disappointed with the kind of overproduced nature of Nevermind over time because he felt like it didn't really accurately reflect how the band sounded live and it was such a departure production-wise from Bleach. So it's interesting that you caught on to that even at a young age. Yeah, I mean, literally, never mind. Kurt Cobain could not play the guitars as they are presented in that album consistently. I'm not saying somebody else played them, but I think he would have to sit there and really focus and sit there doing it properly and trying again and copying and pasting the takes. His sound was very loose and, you know, grungy, for want of a better word, but he wasn't that exact perfect replication of the sound each time. So, yeah, it kind of is this other beast. And again, Butch Vig, an amazing producer, it's an incredible album, but it is not exactly what he presents. If you think about like Creedence Clearwater Revival, which is a band that's extremely similar to Nirvana in a lot of ways, you can hear the instruments that they play and you can hear the way that they play it. And it's still, you can still hear those sounds. It isn't sort of all glossed over. And I think Nirvana, it did get a little glossed over, mm. but still it worked. I joined the team <laughs> and my life was forever changed. You know, I grew up writing. I did go through a Nirvana phase, really heavy Nirvana phase in the late 90s. I think right around the time I was that same age, there was something that really connected with me, but I didn't pursue music. I grew up writing short stories. And when I discovered J.D. Salinger around 15 years old, first through his book, Catcher in the Rye, then his short story collection, Nine Stories, for about a two-year period, everything I wrote mimicked his style. I was obsessed with it. I didn't really realize it at the time, but if you go back and read some of the stuff I was writing, I was just aping his style. So I connected with something you said in a 2017 interview that the first songs you wrote as a teen all kind of sounded like the songs on Bleach. I think you wrote, quote, a lot of screaming. So how did you over your formative years through the 90s come into your own as an artist and find your voice? How do you make that transition? Well, so literally I found my voice because I was screaming into a microphone in a room with a drummer and, you know, the guitar amps turned up to 11 and I couldn't really be heard without either screaming, which just hurt, or singing with a high, strong voice. And I was a completely silent kid. People will tell you, no, Joe does not speak. <laughs> so it was a little bit of a shock for a lot of people when I started singing. And then through this process of trying to imitate Nirvana and just be that sound, and even down to the song structure, you know, this quiet, heavy, quiet, heavy kind of mixture of stuff and lots of aggressive, slightly Americanized yelling, I just found that what my natural voice was doing was totally different. So in the process of trying to become Kurt Cobain, 
it allowed me to just get my voice out there, which is more of a, mm. it's more of a searing, high long note kind of voice. Yeah, it's interesting how that works when people first start getting into whatever art they're pursuing. I think every artist, whether it's writers, painters, musicians, filmmakers, they kind of use whatever that first thing that got them into what they eventually pursue as a kind of crutch to find themselves. And then over time, either because they realize that maybe they're not a good fit for whatever style they initially were exposed to, or just realizing that, oh, I actually can make better use of my talents if I modify myself this way. But that seems to be a very typical, almost prototypical journey for artists, that transition from, okay, this was what I was inspired by, and now this is who I become. That's very much better put than the way I put it. You're exactly right. <laughs> well, I'm just riffing off you. <laughs> now you're riffing like a madman. What I was going to say as you were just saying that was partly because of the way Kurt Cobain spoke about things publicly. Mm. I spent a lot of time worrying about authenticity, which is mm. how we started this interview. Yeah. Worrying about the truth and worrying about not copying things. So even though I jumped full into the grunge thing and really wanted to be Nirvana, in a lot of ways, I felt very uncomfortable aping other things and imitating. And what I've learned, I sort of regret from that period or even later periods is that it is actually a very useful and common thing to do to just start somewhere. You know, you start off as an art house indie pop band, you know, and you and your friends all have the same haircut. <laughs> and it's sort of, you try it on, you develop through that. And I think it's like clothes. Yeah, I was super, I'm still kind of like this. I was super ashamed of the idea of, oh, you know, we're going to be this kind of band. We're going to change it up. We're going to try something that's more contemporary. Mm. I didn't ever want to do that. I always wanted to just be the thing that I first said I would be. And I think I missed out on a lot of trying on different clothes and trying to find out who I was. So I took a longer path because I was against trying on different clothes, basically. Following fashion can be vapid and a waste of time, but it can also be a way of throwing caution to the wind and allowing yourself to be taken along. And you might say, wow, that's the greatest movement ever. Mm -hmm. If I'd gotten into some smooth jazz and been okay with that, I might have bought a beret and a little waistcoat. <laughs> and who knows, maybe that really would have been me. Yeah, yeah. Joe Sumner. Sumner. <laughs> you know, I want to put a pin in what you just said about kind of looking back on the different phases of your music career and having that kind of reflection, or I don't want to say regret, but because you do touch on that a bit in Sunshine in the Night. So I want to circle back to that later. But listening to Fiction Plane's first album from 2003, titled Everything Will Never Be Okay, it's so clearly a young man's album. And I mean that in the best way. It's full of this kind of vigor and vinegar in its lyrics and themes. And I was listening to the uber catchy song, Hate. <laughs> the riff is so good. And it's this kind of ironic critique of people who make cynicism their identity. There's a lyric in it for our listeners that goes, quote, we're cool, we're different, and we hate things. Yeah, we hate things. We hate people. And I wish I had come across your band back then. I was about 20 when you released the album, and I remember exactly where I was in life. And those lyrics would have really taken hold in me back then. But the song's lyrics, I was thinking about this today, Joe, they're somewhat timeless because they reflect a trend on social media that didn't even exist when the song was written. Quote, take a stand and we will cut you down. Be yourself and we'll call you a liar. Be somebody else and we'll set you on fire keep yourself to yourself, and we don't care if you're dying, end quote. That's a lyric from the song. And that's Facebook. That's Twitter, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I haven't heard those lyrics come out and they're, they're pretty good, man. Who wrote them? Oh, it was me. <laughs> yeah, I find that to be exactly what's going on right now. And I, I think when I was younger, it was, I would get that from the music press in England, mm. where when it was really making an impression on me, you have the NME, the New Musical Express, and every band that would come out would be the greatest thing in the world. And then as soon as they kind of got a little bit more successful, they were hated. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's pretentious. It's not pretentious enough. There was no place to really feel comfortable. And I guess that's, you need to sort of run the gauntlet of criticisms and everybody's opinions. And that's part of what it is. You're in the lion's den. That's making music and making art. But yeah, I found it really hard to deal with. And I recognized it when social media really started to take over our lives. Yes. Everyone has to go through that cycle now, even if they're not a public figure. Yes. Yeah, everybody's dealing with that. And I think everybody's dealing with a lot of the things that used to be associated with fame and all that kind of pressure. Everybody's suffering from it. It's like, well, I don't want to say the wrong thing, you know, when I'm on The Tonight Show because everyone will jump on me. And now it's like, I don't want to send a note to my aunt about, you know, where she's going for her Easter holidays because... I'm going to suffer the same kind of criticism <laughs> and like front page news. You know, what a terrible person you are. Yeah, it's a, what a trip. Thank you for listening so deeply to the lyrics, by the way, and really understanding it. So I'm a very lyric focused musician and I do spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm saying and if I really believe it. And I still agree with myself that that's a real thing, all that hate. Lyrics are something that I've always been drawn to whenever I listen to a musician, because I feel they are a crucial, <laughs> I mean, they're a crucial part of any song. And again, listening to Fiction Plane's albums kind of back to back and comparing that to your upcoming solo album, it really kind of paints a picture of a man who, kind of like you just said, you're the same man in many ways that you were 20 years ago, but in also so many ways you've fundamentally changed as you've grown and become a husband and a father. And there's some lyrics from the song In My Shoes, which is off Fiction Plane's fourth album, Mondo Lumina. And they go, quote, when I sit and I think what it's like to be you, I wonder if my little image is skewed. If I could ever know it, I'd pay my dues, end quote. And that's a kind of through line in many of your songs, Joe, over the years of commenting on and attempting to understand the behavior of other people. It's like there's a constant striving to bridge the gap between what you can know about others and what you can't. And it feels like it's something that really moves you and motivates you as an artist. Am I kind of on base there? Yeah, absolutely. Let me see if I can unpack that in a way that makes some sense and is bearable to listen to. So I think my experience growing up with famous parents and being on a sort of kind of on a pedestal, but also by the dint of the same thing, also in a sort of solipsistic universe where everyone I meet has a similar impression of me or some kind of preconceived notion about who I am or what I'm going to be like. That sounds rough. It's weird. By the way, just before I get into any kind of complaining about the world, I have a very, very nice life. <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all good. I'm really super lucky. So just know that is the context of my complaining. Just to yes and you there, obviously everything you said rings true, but I think it's okay to acknowledge whatever your background or upbringing is, right? Yours or otherwise, everything comes with its own distinct and unique hardships, right? And I would imagine that going through a life where it's like 
you're both on a pedestal and in a shadow. People are making judgments about you before ever having known you. You're in the public eye, whether you like it or not. That's got to be tumultuous, especially as a kid. Yeah, it's strange. Like the more I look back on it, the more strange I realize it was. So what I was trying to get to was I would frequently have these interactions where people would tell me that I didn't get it. Like, I don't understand what it's like because, you know, my parents had money or I had access to the higher echelons of the world or whatever. And I would be around people. I would go on tour with my dad and I'd be around the people who are the kind of blue collar, carrying heavy things, driving trucks kind of people. And I felt very comfortable with them, Mm. but they would tell me as a kid, they'd be like, basically, you just don't get it and you're not going to get it. And you're very nice, but you will not understand what the privileges and things that you have. Mm. You're never going to understand the life that we have. And I didn't ever push back on it because this is adults telling me as a kid, this kind of stuff. So I really spent a lot of time trying to break those particular shackles off. Mm and be normal and not be in high society. Like when I got a bit older, when I got to the age where I could work, I worked at the zoo, I worked in a liquor store, I worked in a pub, I didn't own a car, I rode a bicycle everywhere or took public transportation very much on purpose to try and like connect and not be that person who literally can't get it. You know, the idea that I couldn't connect and understand what everyone else was going through was really anathema to what I thought, what kind of person I thought I was going to be, which was someone who connects with humans. Yeah. And of course I can understand. I mean, I do think it's slightly odd that like a grown man would say that to a child, regardless of their standing, but. (laughs) Yeah. Now as a parent, now I look back and I'm like, why were people talking to me like this? (laughs) Right. Exactly. But they they really were. They really were. (laughs) And I can understand, like, I can empathize with their sentiment, but I think, and this is kind of a theme of the show, is we limit ourselves and our ability to connect with others when we make those kind of totalizing judgments, right? Yeah. And we also foreclose our own ability to grow, right? I mean, we see it across sex and gender, across race, class. And of course, to some extent, those statements are true. To be a man, to be a woman, to be black, white, et cetera, to be from different countries, you're never going to totally understand what it's like to live in someone else's shoes. No one ever can do that. But by making those judgments, especially before allowing someone the opportunity to connect with you, it can stifle movements, real political movements. It can stifle change because you're foreclosing the opportunity for people to come together from different walks of life and truly connect in the ways that they can. And so while I understand where those blue collar workers were coming from, I get it. It's a shame that that kind of sentiment is actually, it seems like it's becoming more popular today because I think that it's really almost a kind of self-sabotage against connection and across building movements that transcend class and race. A hundred percent. I so agree with you. This is very good. Did I accidentally call better help? What's happening? You totally nailed it. I think to push back the other side of that in terms of sort of political movements and things like that, there is a way in which some group or other has to maintain their separateness to not have it kind of whitewashed and have you know some completely different group of people who have a different set of interests come in like i appreciate fully that if i was going to join some political movement 
my interests just don't align with any of these, you know, what other people need or I can't see the exact things. I can get it. I can sit there and study it, but my underlying motivation is going to be different. You know, what do I want out of life? I want to be able to artistically do whatever I want. I want the ability to go around the world and not be recognized as who I am all the time. I want to have a bit of freedom to be just some guy. Those are things that interest me. Whereas someone who is driving a truck is going to say, you know what? I want job security and I want more. I want a pay rise. I want someone to recognize me for who I am. Mm. I want someone to say, your work is important and we're going to pay you more. We're going to hold your job and your person and your face in higher esteem. Mm. And I literally want, most of the time, I want the opposite of that. I want to be sort of hidden and left alone a bit. So, you know, I get that sense of just balkanizing. There's reasons for it, is what I'm saying. But I completely agree that when you say, to some other group of people, you're not going to get it. I think you cut off a lot of opportunity for shared interests to connect and come together and actually do something meaningful. Yes. No, I, I totally agree with everything that you said as well. It's just a virtuous cycle of agreement. <laughs> and because... Can I just push back on that? Because otherwise, no, there won't, there won't be any pushback. Yeah, we'll have to make up some kind of disagreement here. But yeah, I fully agree. And I, I don't think those two things are intention. And I don't think you do either. It's like we can all be separate people, either because of things beyond our control or things within our control, whether it be class, ethnicity, etc. But I think we all want to, all of us who are on the same team in this respect, want to caution against turning away the very people who want to sit down and listen and grow. Because it's usually those people who can sometimes be soured, the very people who want to be like, hey, I'm not part of this group. But I would love to get to know you on your terms so that I can better understand you. And I think it's a fine line to walk. So I think you're on point there. But to take it back to music, I don't know if you watched the Beatles documentary that was on Disney Plus, that eight-hour epic. I got through the first one so far. Now that I'm on tour, I'm going to do my damnedest to get through the next two. But I did watch the first one. So let's go. It's so good. And, you know, especially watching as as a non-musician, some of the most transcendent and revealing moments for me were watching the band kind of create a song in real time. Like watching Paul find the initial kind of primordial riff for Get Back. Exactly. That moment that moment is amazing because you see well it's the, the whole thing is like this. You see the the creation of what we now regard as a thing. It's a real piece of art. It's an iconic mm-hmm. tune and everything else and it is part of history. And yet there it is, sort of just a little limping embryo yeah. coming out of it. And he, you know, he doesn't quite get it right. It's sort of a thing. Is it a thing? And it totally matters whether he has the balls to go through with pushing it through as a song. Mm-hmm. And if everyone else doesn't push back too hard, if everyone else ignores it, then that's not a song. Right. Yes. And it's incredibly relatable as an actual musician to see them kind of just noodling with stuff. They start playing covers. They come back with some riff and it's not really working and whatever. And having not watched the whole thing, I don't know exactly how it flows, but I do know that it ends with an iconic, stunning album yeah, yes. and an incredible live performance that is one for the ages. So I know, I know the end of the story, but seeing how it just ebbs and flows and there's nothing that you could apart from knowing, already knowing that they're the Beatles, I can look at any 20-minute passage of that movie and just be like, "Eh, you know, whatever. 
who are these guys? Not, there's nothing great about them. <laughs> there's nothing great about the songs and they're not playing anything particularly interesting. You know what I mean? Yes. And that's, that's how wrong you can be. And it's really about doing the work. It's spending the time. It's passionately pushing through this inkling of a vision that you might have and then making it something amazing. And then it sort of crystallizes, it crushed like a, into a diamond <laughs> and it lasts forever. But it's just coal up to that point. It's just pickaxes against a black wall. Yeah. That point you made about how you can kind of take any 20-minute snippet from that documentary, and if you don't know, you know, you show it to an alien or someone who's never heard of the Beatles before, again, it just kind of looks like musicians noodling because in that 20-minute segment, it is. And it would be like if someone, you know, 500 years ago, you know, watched Da Vinci sketching part of the Mona Lisa, the first few brush strokes, it looks like nothing. I'm really attracted to what you said about how it's almost like you're talking about a kind of multiverse, right? Where there exist two realities or 10 realities in which the song that becomes famous, brilliant, remembered forever, wasn't always guaranteed. It could have gotten squashed in the studio. It maybe kind of fizzled out halfway through. And we look back and we see these songs, whatever artist, whatever band we're talking about, and we almost take them for granted because you never realize how many songs were aborted or didn't make it or just fizzled out along the way. And I think that's a really good observation. Yeah, I tend to characterize it like lighting a match. Let's say every match is equally incredible. One, you know, maybe this is like the parable of the seeds or whatever. You light this match, you strike it, the flame is blown out immediately by a small breeze. Mm. And that's 99% of everything, all ideas. And then you just have this one match that happens to have been shielded from the wind and you can place it down on the dry hay and it catches fire and the fire keeps growing. And at a certain point, you just can't put it out. Mm. Like there's nothing you can do. There's no amount of criticism or hatred or just you know, finding some way, there's no way for you to stop it. You can't pour enough water on it to stop it and it just keeps going. And there's not an easy way to say which of those matches is getting to that point. Mm. And in a sort of like survival of the fittest sense, as an artist, it's hard to know if you should, you know, do your best to shield every single match you start. Should you shield each one equally and hope that they get to this huge burning wildfire? Or should you say, well, you know what? If it doesn't stand the test of this bit of wind, then it's a failure. And it's hard to know if it's the quality of the initial idea mm. or if it's the circumstances you find yourself in or it's how much you as the artist and creator just fight for it. Right. Yeah. That's such a good point. I mean, making that call when to let the match fizzle out or blow on the fire and keep it going until it becomes, like you were saying, such a roaring fire that nothing can put it out. Making that call is so difficult, right? Trying to figure out, well, you know, if, if I make enough tweaks or if I change this just enough or if I change it from a fast song to a slow song or vice versa or add this instrument or take that one out, Again, I don't have any musical background, but I have experienced that with writing or I'll be working on a screenplay and I'll just be thinking, is this not working because there's nothing here and I just need to give it up or it's not working because I just haven't cracked the code yet? And making that distinction, you would think it would get better with time. <laughs> I mean, has it gotten better with time for you or are you still fighting that same battle you were when you first started? Not at all. And I can attest to this from you know, more established artists that I know, you know, when they write a new song, they still don't really know. Like, mm. you can definitely get to a point where you know it's a good song. Like, it does all the things it's supposed to do. It's solid. 
it's memorable, but there's not really a great way to say this one's going to catch fire. This one's going to really connect with people. You can improve the craft, but you can't really improve this sort of insane amount of geoengineering it would take to mm. know how to really make something go from zero to a hundred. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, most major artists now can tour on their own from their old school catalog and then they play their new songs and it's like, uh, whatever, fine. It's fast. It's okay. It's a good song. It's not bad, but it's not the thing that's going to inspire anyone to, to join their team and be obsessed with them. It's just another piece of work that they did. And that's interesting too, because every song, no matter how famous or long lasting the song is today, it feels like any song goes through that process, you know, where it at first is just the new song in the lineup. And the audience is like, ah, I was more of a fan of your old stuff. Yep. But then the new stuff over time becomes the old stuff. And the audience loves that new old stuff. It's like it has to go through this process of being kind of washed over in an audience nostalgia. And then it becomes crystallized. And it's just thinking about that process is interesting about how the new stuff is almost always, whether it's music, art, etc. There's always going to be a part of the audience that chafes against anything new until the new stuff becomes old and then they love it. <laughs> yes. I think there is part of that. As the artist, you have to fight. You have to fight for it because you know that feeling. I even know that feeling. I've only had a couple of what you could call hits, but I can tell, I can feel the difference. It's easy to throw the old hit in and you get the reaction. And then you bring out this new song, which is, you can do your very best to, to really present it as strongly as possible. And it's like, you just know it's not going to get that reaction. Mm. So you, you have to make a sacrifice in the moment for the long term. And that idea of kind of mixing old stuff with new stuff and testing stuff out, it makes me think of, like I've been listening to a lot of comedy podcasts where comedians will talk about the kind of art and method of writing jokes and testing out new material and how to kind of form the structure of an act of a set and where to put the ones they know are hits and then where to put the new stuff. And when it comes to writing jokes, and trust me, Joe, I, I do have a way to tie this back to music. <laughs> I'm happy to stay with comedy for a while. <laughs> Take the pressure off me. There we go. But it seems like the joke writing, you can really put it into two distinct kind of mega umbrella camps. There's, I guess, what you could call like the Jerry Seinfeld method, where the joke is written in full, alone, you know, in his house, and then it's in its completed state when it's first put up in front of an audience. But then a lot of comics will kind of write on the road. They'll have a funny idea or like a bit of a joke, and then they'll start workshopping it over dozens of dates before presenting the final version for their taped special. So I know it's not exactly the same, but do you go through a process with your songs where you're kind of workshopping them on the road and then you record the final one for the studio? Or do you like taking them once they're finalized whether they're recorded or not, and then performing them live. I definitely perform stuff live that is nowhere near ready half the time. I like to just go out there and see what happens. But I'll tell you this, I think there's a kind of, in the way that you have to, if you're blowing glass or something like that, you have to cast the whole thing in one go mm. to make it really work. There can be a thing where I've taken a song out and it's worked pretty well live and then I'll get back into the studio to try and finalize it. And it's already half dried. I love that image. It's sort of, yeah, half of it's there. And then you're kind of adding on and it doesn't ever quite feel like a complete single thing. 
to leapfrog off what you just said, there was a, and I know a lot of this interview probably feels like a life retrospective because I'm talking about stuff that is so long ago, but there was this June 2007 interview that I watched of you in Seattle, Washington. It was about two weeks after Fiction Plane's second album, Left Side of the Brain, came out. And you spoke about how going from the studio version of an album to performing it live affects the songs themselves, that the album is a snapshot of you at a certain moment in time. And you go on to say, quote, as we play together, as an audience reacts to it, all the songs grow and change, end quote. And so just to kind of continue what you were talking about just now, I'd love to learn more about how that kind of happens as you're touring with a collection of songs and how the process of performing them live changes them. Yeah. Okay. So if you took the Jerry Seinfeld approach where you sit there and I don't know how you do that all on your own, like, is there an internal workshop? Is there him and Larry David saying things to each other and, (laughs) you know, seeing what works? But let's say I just sat down and wrote an entire joke out and then I went to the comedy club and played it live. And then I get a certain reaction. Maybe I'm such a genius that I know exactly what people are going to think already. Mm. Maybe I've spent so long learning that, that I really, I have a way to look forward and say, okay, this is, this is exactly how it's going to work. But personally, I don't have that experience. (laughs) So (laughs) when I go and take a song out into the world that even if we've spent five months in the studio recording it and going over every last note and EQ and lyric and everything with great detail, you still get, well, you know what? It just sort of felt a bit flat at the end. Nothing happened. Mm. It didn't do anything. And then you say, okay, let's have a little gap in the middle of the song. Let's stop for one second and then come back. And then is that going to elicit this great cheer? And is that going to change the whole song and make it a real event? I mean, that's how I think about the way that the song changes over time. And it's, you know, when you don't know what people are going to react, you tend to just push volume and power and strength and just go out there and make it as you know, tight and perfect as possible. But then, you know, what might happen is people might specially pick up on the lyrics Mm. and people might want to sing along and then you can just stop the band and sing a little bit and maybe keep a little hi-hat playing to keep the rhythm and everybody in the audience just sings the song to you. Mm. And that's the highlight of any gig. Yeah. Really, like that's the best moment and you've completely changed the song by not even playing it. Yeah. It just, it's become its own thing. So, you know, you have to be open to that kind of stuff. The audience becomes an instrument. The audience is the greatest instrument and it's, they're going to take that, but they also might not take it. Mm. They might not take up the mantle. They might just say, I'm going to sit here and you entertain me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Play the songs. Here we are now, entertain us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you made the songs. We came to see you play those songs the way that you already told us they were going to go. And I don't want anything different. This is one of the great things about talking to folks from entirely different walks of life from my own, because, you know, I come from a film background and there's a sentiment that you've expressed that is very similar to what filmmakers will express, but in a fundamentally different way because of how films are made versus music, where, you know, you can see a filmmaker over the course of his or her life, you know, make film after film, and they can take the things that they learned from their first film and then apply those things to the second and then apply what they learned in the second to the third and so on. I even saw an interview with Steven Spielberg where he goes back occasionally and he'll watch one of his older films and he'll say, if I made that film again today, I would make it differently based on the filmmaker I am now versus then. But when you make a film, even if you might go around touring it or going to festivals or doing Q&As, that film is frozen in time forever. 
you know, you can't really, I mean, I guess you could do it with like the special editions of Star Wars, <laughs> but ordinarily you can't really go back and continue to modify that film. You can only take what you learned from it and then make a different film. But when you go through this process of performing the song live over and over again and finding ways to, I don't know if improve is the right word or, or change it or just become something more, how does that affect how you then listen to the song back on the album? Do you ever feel a sense of, man, I wish I could, now that I know what I know, and now that we've changed this song, I wish I could record it again. Do you ever have that? Or what does that feel like? Yeah, I've definitely had the regret of, you know what? I've listened back to the album version and it's not as brave as it could be. That's usually the thing I have. Mm. Because you're, you know, you're listening to it, you're in a studio, you're not in a live performance setting. You have a sense that it's forever. So there's the sort of, it makes you a little more cautious, a little more careful. And when you've spent a lot of time recording something and really nailing it, the idea of then saying, well, let's completely change the section. You know, there's an amount of work that that takes to pull off. You've got to undo stuff. And then you have the thing of everybody's minds are set on the way it was. Right. And, you know, if you have a new version of it that's an A and the old version was a B, you're going to need like an A++ to get everybody over the hump of wanting to go there. Right. And I think just because of the unknowns of what the reaction will be to the song, I think there's there's a lot of fear that can happen when you're creating it where it's like, no, if, if I make this big, bold move right now, I don't know what's going to happen. Is everyone going to laugh at me forever mm. with this recorded piece of music? And in a live setting, you know what? One night out of 20, you can do some stupid ass thing that just totally works. Yeah. And, you know, then you can stick with that. But if it doesn't work or, you know, you just move on. Right. And the audience will be more forgiving in that sense because they still will always have the original version recorded. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, many people won't notice that particular thing right? <laughs> at all. Or they'll just, you know, it's in a timeline that that it only, well, that was one minute of the two hours. So whatever, it doesn't really affect them that much. Mm. But when it's in a recorded song, especially if it's, you think it's going to be the single or it's going to be the thing that goes out there, it's played over and over again, exactly the way it is in all contexts. And that is a lot of pressure because it has to sort of sustain itself and it has to sustain you and it has to be representing you in a very real way. Maybe this is a good analogy. So we're having a conversation and I'm not, I haven't prepared what I'm saying. I'm just speaking out of my head. But if you said, okay, you've got a 20 second clip, you're going to be on video and you're going to explain to the world what you're about and what you're up to. That's very scary. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to really express what you're saying. And I could overthink that for six months and then get it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joe, I relate to that so much. <laughs> I was talking about this with Janara Nirenberg, the founder of the Neurodiversity Project, a couple episodes mm. ago. Yes. And I go through that kind of same, I mean, I go through that same process every single time I write questions to ask to guests. I'm thinking, is this boring? Have they been asked this a million times? And it's so interesting how we compartmentalize and think about different ways of publishing and different ways of speaking in different ways, right? You're probably not super self-conscious about the stuff you're saying now because we're having a conversation, but it's like when you know you have to plan something out in advance, it fundamentally changes how you think about it. A hundred percent. Yeah. My name is Joe Sumner and this is what I'm all about. <laughs> This is my mission statement. Yeah. I would probably end up just being like, well, I'll play music and uh, hello, nice to meet you. Yeah. And <laughs> run away from it. Can I ask, do you feel less pressure as the number of episodes you've done goes up or is it just a constant 
terrible fear of asking the wrong questions. And let me preface that with, you've asked wonderful questions and I really appreciate the depth that you've gone into to focus on lyrics and, and all this kind of stuff. It's been a very nice experience. Oh, well, thank you so much. But I just imagine if you've done, if it's your first ever episode and you get it a bit wrong, it must feel like the end of the world and 50 in, it's a little more chill. You know, it's so serendipitous that you ask that because I was talking with my dad last night and he asked me the exact same question because I was talking to him about this interview today and we were just kind of chatting and I was kind of going over like, oh, I was thinking about going this direction and, you know, I would read him a sample question and because we're very close. And he asked me that same thing. He was like, son, you know, now that you've done 50 episodes, do you feel differently? And in some sense, I do, right? And I imagine the the same question could be turned back around to you as a musician. I mean, anytime I think you have a public-facing thing, there's always that lingering feeling. I do feel more comfortable on the mic, for sure, compared to episode one with uh, Zed Jelani. Or no, that was the first recording. Episode one was uh, John Wood Jr. I recorded it after Zed, but released it first. Either way, I was definitely much more nervous there. So I'm much more casual. But in terms of my prep, I still get super anxious because I just get caught in this cycle. And I think this speaks to something you said earlier, Joe. I get in this cycle of kind of a perfectionist tendency and anxiety, my own worst critic. I'm hyper self-critical. Yep. And I go through a process with whatever I do, whether it's a podcast episode, a short film from years ago, whatever. I go through the exact same process. When I'm prepping for it and when I make it, I feel it's awful, right? And then about six months later, if I go back to it and listen to it again or watch it again or read it again, if I have that six months of distance, I usually will return to it and be like, that was pretty good. Yep. But in the moment, I hate it. <laughs> you hate it and you hate everything about yourself. <laughs> it's the You're just the worst. Yeah. We're looking in the mirror, man. <laughs> I would analogize those two things. So preparing, I think, for these shows would seem more like writing the song. Mm. And then doing the actual podcast, presenting, talking, having the conversation feels more like doing the show. Mm -hmm. And I think that you can get better at and it's easier and it becomes more relaxed and fine. Yes. But writing the song and then saying, okay, this is the song. That's always terrifying. Right. Yes. That can get harder and harder as you go. And why I think that analogy you made is so perfect is it speaks to something you just said 10 minutes ago, which is you have to write the whole song, right? You have to write it beginning to end because you need that structure. And then once you're out playing it live, you can riff, right? You can respond to the audience. You can open up a gap for the audience to sing, or you can make space for them to clap, but you can't completely dissolve the song and write something new on the spot. And it's sort of similar with like an outline, right? It's like, okay, I have a structure of what I want to talk with Joe about. And within that structure, we can riff. I can go off in a direction if he wants to go there, but I can't, you know, if, if all of a sudden you were like, I want to talk about my love for candy corn, I can't be like, oh my God, I don't have any questions. <laughs> we can't go that far away. I, I, I'm not prepared for it, you know? So it's about finding where to riff within the structure of the song. Yeah, exactly. And as you do that more, you can do that more easily and more confidently and it can be fine. Yeah. I have to be honest. So we planned this a couple of weeks ago, this particular interview at this particular time. I've had more anxiety about getting together to do this than I just played in front of 10,000 German people last night. And it was, I mean, it was great, but I didn't have any anxiety prior to that. I walked on stage and did the show. It was completely fine. Huh. Now, do you think that if I were German, ethnically German, you would feel more comfortable? 
It's all about ethnicity. It's the most, <laughs> it's the most important thing in the world, and that's exactly it. And please, it. it's totally okay. Yes, please <laughs> Germanify yourself right now. <laughs> I do understand what you're saying. I mean, if I could take a guess, it's like. I don't know how many, you know, interviews you do on a regular basis, but you've been performing music your entire life. It's an exercise. It's a thing that you do that you're very used to, right? So yeah. is that some of it? Yeah, yeah, I'm for sure. I think also though, you can, there's a weird, so I've written my songs, I've practiced my guitar, I've practiced my singing, I've got all that, and I'm in control of the narrative and it's up to me to kind of bend the audience to my will and make them have a good time. Mm. But in an interview, a conversation it's free form really. Right. And the questions are coming at me <laughs> and that, that can be terrifying. And can I come up with something interesting to say, or am I going to be attacked? Or I didn't think that about you, <laughs> but you know, do I feel comfortable talking about the particular thing that's going to come up? That can all be much more scariness in a way and much more sort of intimate. Yes. I totally understand that. It's why I feel more comfortable hosting than than being a guest, because I yearn for that comfort of prep. Good for you. <laughs> I'm glad somebody's prepared. It's good. Now, I'm not sure how much television you watch, Joe, but I was talking with a friend recently about how watching a TV show on a weekly basis as it's released for the first time, right? Week after week, episode after episode yep. versus binging the entire series afterwards in a short period can really change fundamentally how you actually perceive the series. Like if you're watching the episodes in a just a shotgun over the course of six hours on a Saturday, it feels different. You process those episodes differently than if you watch them with a seven-day gap in between. And so listening to Fiction Plane's first album back-to-back with your upcoming solo album, Sunshine in the Night, was kind of like that. To quote the titular song off the first album, Everything Will Never Be Okay, you write, quote, Every time I wake up, it's a brand new day, and I realize my body's resigned to die. Everything will never be okay, end quote. And so the sun, in this metaphor, may have risen and be shining, but the inner world of that song is rather dark. And the title of your upcoming album, Sunshine in the Night, which is a line from Jelly Bean, a song we'll talk about in a minute, evokes opposing imagery, right? No matter how dark it may literally get, a light will shine through. So how much of what you were writing then and what you were writing now reflects an internal change, a shift in your own outlook, a man 20 years later, and how much of this change is simply artistic exploration, like wanting to experiment with a new sound, play with new ideas, that sort of thing? I mean, I think age and perspective is definitely plays a big part of it. Yeah, so everything will never be okay. It's a mixed feeling a lot of people were like found it to be very negative of a thing to say but what i really was trying to say is that there will always be some annoying tragic awful thing going on in the world and the song is quite jaunty and upbeat yeah i like that i like that friction there i really enjoyed singing it and so i was feeling joy while singing it but i'm also saying you know everything will never be okay. There's going to be some problem. Mm. And I guess the advice of the song is, so just get on with it. <laughs> Although in the, in the bridge, I say like you can escape and living in a world of music, you feel no pain. So despite the tragedies of what's happening in the world, you can still enjoy yourself and have a good time. In fact, you deserve to, and you should. And it's disrespectful to uh, everyone else who may be suffering. If you have the opportunity to mm. enjoy yourself and escape, then you, you should damn it, you're like, you're alive. You can, you can do this thing, even though there's horrible things happening and there are horrible things happening. You have the chance now to 
not engage with those things for five minutes and be happy. And you should, because soon you'll be dead. I mean, again, in a similar way to one of the other songs we talked about from that album, it feels like a song that could be very relatable to the present. Because again, you see that same kind of thing suck people in online. It's like you forget that life has so many wonderful things that abound, right? Friends and family, our health, whatever it may be. And yet so many of us will get sucked into these online fights or these dystopian scenarios online. We can be so quick to forget the good things in life, right? Yeah, I think the fact that we have access now to everything, all the news, and there's the negativity bias, obviously, it's a stronger image to see what's happening in Ukraine than the image of, let's say, two and a half billion people having a pleasant afternoon today, which they did. Right. So it's just hard to really get that image on the news. They're not going to show like a video of every single person outside at a cafe having a nice experience. Right. It's just not it's not going to sell. Anderson Cooper cannot talk about that very clearly. But anyway, so yeah, I think my perspective now, that was a perspective of like we can avoid the bad stuff. And my perspective now is a little more like in the eternal darkness of the universe where the sun at some point if the scientists are correct, will expand and consume the earth in 4 billion years. There is the joy and the beauty and incredible passion of many things. For me, it's mostly my family, my, my wife and my children are just magical beings mm. that can light up anything. And I, I do feel like I could tolerate almost anything happening mm. as long as I have that for myself, as long as I have kept my kids safe as long as I have their love. It doesn't really matter so much. I could be pretty stoic about almost everything else, I think. Yeah. I mean, don't test me on that, the gods of fate, please. But <laughs> I think I could deal with a lot of stuff as long as I had my kids and wife right now. And there is really that through line throughout the whole of Sunshine in the Night the album, as I was listening to it, it feels like part confessional, part atonement, part transcendent self-forgiveness. It feels quite self-reflective at times, but also really buoyant and hopeful. And there's a, a line off of the song Hope that calls back to something you said earlier in our talk about how sometimes you look back at your musical career and wish you'd maybe tried on a different set of clothes or experimented with fashion, to use your analogy. And in the song, you write, quote, everything is perfect, but I can't relax just yet. I'm the king of being too careful. I'm the master of regret. I'm afraid of the future. I'm afraid of the past. I'm afraid that the life I took so long to love is moving by too fast, end quote. And I ugh, really connected. I mean, it's such a universal feeling, right? That idea of loving what you have, but still thinking back on the things that you wish you'd done different. So how did this album take shape, Joe? Were the themes and moods within it mapped out ahead of time, or did you kind of find them along the way? Yeah, I really found them along the way. It's written entirely in the context of becoming a dad and being a family human being, which before I actually started doing that, I was not interested in it at all. Mm. I met the woman of my dreams and I just said, okay, we were both of sort of mid thirties. So like kind of had to either get on the horse or run away. And I just was like, okay, I'm going to see how this goes because if I don't start having my own kids right now, then I don't know if I'll, I'll get to, I don't, I don't know how exactly I went from 
no, I'm a bachelor and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be on tour forever and I don't care about this kind of stuff to becoming a doting father. But it happened. And the magic of that really subsumed all my artistic stuff. So the last fiction plane album, I did write one song about my children, but then this album really just became almost all about it. But it wasn't really picked out in advance. It just showed up in the songs. Mm. I think I wrote 30 or 40 songs for it. And then when it came to curate the songs that I thought were best, they pretty much all came down to the spectrum of songs about appreciating life and being a dad. You talk about meeting your wife, Kate. I, I believe you married in late 2011. And the two of you have four children together now. Did I get that number right? That's a good number. There we go. In the song Jelly Bean, it's such a beautiful song. You write, my running wild, my tiny child, my sunshine in the night. You saved me from the darkness and you took me to the light. And there's a famous quote by author and professor Elizabeth Stone. It's often misattributed to Steve Jobs that goes, quote, making the decision to have a child is momentous. It is to decide forever to have your heart go walking around outside your body, end quote. So I know you talked a bit just now about how becoming a father really affected the music you wanted to pursue. I would just love to kind of lean into that a little more. Is this a direction you're going to continue to pursue even after this album? Has it fundamentally changed the direction of your musical career? What are your thoughts on that? I don't know. I mean, as I said, I didn't really make a conscious decision to focus on that. I just find it really, it's the thing that's getting me going. It's the thing that inspires me. Mm. But I still do have... I don't know if you heard the song Death Machine on the uh, left side of the Brain Fiction Plane album. Yes. And I had a lot of anti-war stuff in my, a lot of my earlier songs. Really just, it's fuck you and your death machine. That's still stand by, <laughs> I still stand by that lyric. It's hard for me to separate the feelings from the actual things I'm trying to say. I understand. And I imagine that being a father now especially magnifies those feelings. Yeah. So, you know, I am in a world where Part of my existence is to be a role model for my children. And I would feel very weird now about putting out more sort of flippant music. Mm. It would be hard for me to discuss things where, you know, I don't really want to be representing that particular thing all day. Like it's fine to talk about it in an intellectual context or at work, but my work comes home. It goes everywhere. You know, I'm singing, I'm out in the world singing and making noise about these themes. And I want to be able to do that all day long, you know, all night long without, I don't want to go home and it's like, oh, here's the guy who's always talking about, you know, shooting heroin on in the street or something like I'm, you know, I'm doing this sort of Lou Reed thing. I'm like, you know, I don't want to be doing that. So there's ways to talk about that stuff, but I, you know, I think it subsumes your whole life if you're going to publicly talk about themes and that has to fit with your life. Otherwise it's a bit of a problem. Yes. No, I totally understand. I've heard similar sentiments from comedians, filmmakers, etc., that having a child or children and just becoming a mother or a father in that respect really makes you reflect on the kind of content you want to put out into the world. That seems like a really big through line for artists. Yeah. I mean, I have experience from my own life of, you know, certain people I know putting heavy emphasis publicly on their sexuality and things like that. And it's you know, I can tell you as someone near the blast radius of that stuff, it's really unsettling. 
it's just not what you really want. Yeah. As another human being around, you know, I guess somebody's got to be doing it because it's important. That's a very important part of culture. All of the vulgar and explicit and the honest and the brutal and the violent, all this stuff is super important for us to have out there in the culture. But maybe that's a landmine that other people can jump on and I'm I'm just going to be at home making another bowl of pasta. Well, you know, there's this Harvard psychologist named Daniel Gilbert. He wrote this book called Stumbling on Happiness. I first came across him because of a, a TED talk he gave all the way back in 2007 called The Surprising Science of Happiness. And he really studies why we make the decisions we do, why we think those decisions will make us happy, and why so often we're wrong. And he studies the kind of science and the psychology behind why we do the things we do and make the decisions we make and why we're so often incorrect. Mm -hmm. And in that book, he talks about how one of the fundamental errors we make is kind of thinking of ourselves as one person moving through time when he thinks that it's better to think of ourselves at least as three people, right? Like past Michael, present Michael, future Michael, past Joe, present Joe, future Joe. Because if you segment yourself in those ways, it can therefore be easier to understand why you made the decisions you made in the past, right? Like Joe without kids, Joe who wasn't married, wasn't thinking about the very things he's thinking about now because he wasn't married and because he didn't have kids. And so going off of the point you were making about how someone in society is going to be talking about those things, yeah, when they are a different person in a different phase of life. And I, I think as we grow and become different people because of the circumstances that we're in, that change and the people that we meet, I think it only makes sense that we change as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think some people are just also more equipped to, or maybe they're just more focused on their public expression of whatever it is they're feeling, that they can just do that and who cares about the consequences on individuals they may know. Or they might just, just you know, not find it to be difficult stuff to talk about. They might, or they might mm. love the attention so much that they don't care. <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's also, yeah, that is no. That's also very real. Yeah, that is a very real thing in the entertainment industry. Yeah, I really wish I could ramp up the narcissism a little bit. It would be easier. For the sake of this lovely conversation, I'm glad that you can't. But you know, speaking of family, you know, I mentioned earlier that I have a really close relationship with my father yeah. and he fostered a love of storytelling in me from a very young age. I've told this story, I think once before on the podcast and he's so many things to me in my life. You know, I mean, he's obviously my dad. He's a close friend, a confidant, a moral compass, so much more. And so I was watching a live performance of your song, Looking for Me, Looking for You which is just such a great song. You know, sometimes when I think of songs for the first time, I kind of involuntarily conjure up images. And while I was listening to that song, it felt like I was driving down the PCH, you know, the Pacific Coast Highway. I know it well. On a sunny day. That's the kind of thing that that song, that flute in the song made me think of. And so this was back in 2017. You were playing in Tuscany. I believe your dad performed at the same event. But in this video... He's sitting on the corner of the stage, just kind of comfortably, casually clapping along to your song. I know you've performed on stage with Sting many, many times over the years, of course, and you're touring with him now, I believe. But it was that video, you know, just seeing that little moment, and maybe I'm misreading it, but it stuck out to me because it made me realize what a joy it must be at times to spend that much time with your dad, because to not only share a common interest in songwriting, but to make so many memories with him over the years as adults doing what you both love to do. I guess my question to you, you know, speaking as a, a fellow son, how has that been for you as a son to just have that time with your dad? I can say it's very special to spend actual time with my dad doing something that we both like to do. 
what we both love to do. The flip side of that is it's really a very strange experience to have him be part of the wider world and his existence colors everything else. So many interactions I'll have on a daily basis. He's there, but he's not there. Mm. He's in the other person's eyes or thoughts or whatever. And that's really strange. <laughs> and that's, I think that's part of, again, I think I said this near the beginning, but that leads me to this sort of weird solipsistic simulation theory, Truman Show-esque experience where everybody is just all the same. They're all NPCs mm. and they're all bringing the same perspective. And that's very weird. So it's a huge relief and a great pleasure to be actually with my dad and he's there and that's becomes normal again. Yeah. And it's fine. It's great to play together. And I can only imagine, I mean, just playing really bad basketball with my own son <laughs> is such an incredible pleasure. I mean, it must be a trip for him. So I'm very happy that I get to get to know my dad. This next question, I don't know if it's too personal, but what you were just saying now made me think back on a conversation I had with Jay Shapiro, a documentary filmmaker in episode 46. And in that particular conversation, we were talking about his father who had passed away, but there was a moment in it where his father is in hospice and his father was a very beloved teacher and professor. And he had kept his illness from his students and, and, and other faculty. And when it was kind of the final two weeks, the family decided to let people know. So if they wanted to send any messages of gratitude or anything else that they could read to him, they would. And so over the course of these two weeks, Jay is talking to me about how all these messages are coming through, right? And as they're reading them and as Jay is, you know, communicating all these well wishes and people sharing memories that they had on campus with his dad, it was this kind of weird experience for him because on one hand, it was so lovely for him to understand what his father meant to so many people. But on the other hand, he expressed that he had this almost involuntary feeling of jealousy towards these other, you know, students or colleagues who had made memories with his father that he hadn't made, right? Now, obviously, he understood it was kind of a nonsensical feeling to have because, of course, his dad's his own person. He's out there in the world. He's living his life. He's not, he, even if they have a very close relationship, we all form multiple relationships, friendships with people over time. Yeah. But it was a weird experience for him to hear about all these friendships and connections his father had made. And so the reason I brought that up, Joe, is, is just something that you had said there made me realize something I really hadn't considered, which is that, He's both simultaneously your father, your dad, but that you're also having to experience almost like the most hyper hyped up version of what Jay is describing there, where so many people, quote unquote, know your father. I don't know if I have a larger question there, but it was just something I had never really considered. And it must have been at some point in your life anyway, difficult to navigate that tension. Yeah, I totally relate to what Jay is talking about there. And maybe it's jealousy. It's something. It's a weird feeling that someone else can be like, oh, I'm so inspired by this or that of your father. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Good. Good. Good for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. Good for you. And I wasn't there. It wasn't very special for me that moment. So whatever. Yeah. I mean, good for Jay's dad. I'm sure he was a, a wonderful teacher. There's also people put a lot of their own, obviously this is other people's experiences. I just find people tend to, they put a lot more importance on the experience that they had with that person then I think really mm. warrants. I don't think they're fully getting the picture. Does that make sense? Yes. 
It does. I mean, I think that I'm sure you've experienced that as a public figure, as an artist yourself. I mean, I, you know, this is a very tiny sliver of that experience, but I think when speaking for myself in this little podcast, I hadn't really processed the fact that I'm in people's ears, like when I talk. And so when you're listening to music or when you're listening to a podcast, I think in some ways it is a similar experience. I mean, obviously music adds a whole another level because it can become transcendent. You associate songs with certain times in your life. They become kind of time machines for you to return to. And you're like, oh, I, I remember the first time I heard Smells Like Team Spirit. I was 14 years old and then the riff came on and it changed. You know, we have those experiences with music, but the intimacy of hearing someone's voice in your head, if you're listening to them on headphones, let's say creates a bond with the listener that, you know, I respect. But, you know, when I would first sometimes get messages, well wishes from people like, I listened to your show and I felt this way. Sometimes the outpouring of the raw kind of expression there, you know, and it's coming from a very real place. They want to talk to me like they know me very well. And I can understand why they want to do that because they've listened to dozens of hours of my voice. And it's just, I guess, something that you have to get used to. And I imagine you experience that as well as a musician. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the spoken word into the ear, I've listened to many podcasts in my life. So I really, I do relate to that. For me, that feels more intimate than music, I think, mm. because you're, you know, it's your own voice and you're explaining things and you're talking in real time. Yeah. But yeah, it's weird, right? <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've, I felt that same thing when I've listened to podcasts too. Cause when you listen to something again and again every week, they start to feel like your friends. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh, I get to listen to a new episode of blah, blah, blah podcast. And, you know, they're all sitting around and they're having a drink and, and you just, you kind of feel transported to where they are. And social media is almost kind of this way as well, where someone could be reading post after post. They follow you on Twitter or Instagram or whatever. And over the course of a year or two years, they've seen photos of your life. They've read your posts. They've connected with them. They like them. And you can never have a personal interaction with that person, but they feel through no fault of their own, it's a natural feeling to have, they feel a connection to you and yet they've never met you. Yeah. And it's such a weird 21st century thing we're all going through together. Yeah, it is weird. Even people that you do know, but you know, there's people I know that I haven't seen for 10 years and they're fully up to date with exactly what's going on in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's so weird. And I'm like, how are you doing? How's Manchester? They're like, oh, I've moved to Japan. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) All right. Well then, and then they're like, you know, wish these six people a good day. And I really enjoyed watching you do this specific thing. I'm like, okay, that's even that strange, but it is even weirder when you don't know them at all. Right. I find this a tricky balance actually, because generally I'm pretty nice person. I'm caring. I do like people. I like people to feel good. But when I put energy into that reaching out to people or I'll just do an Instagram post and someone will send me a nice message and I'll send a nice message back. I don't know them at all. Is that love? Is that friendship? Is that kindness that I could be spending on my intimates, my people that are right there? Am I distracting myself and going into this other simulated world of that stuff? Mm. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Is it? I mean, maybe it's just a technology thing where it's the equivalent of walking down the high street and the butcher and the baker step out and say, good morning. And you just say, good morning. And you know, you say some kind thing to them and there's, you help some old lady get on the bus. Is it the same as that? Cause that's, that's a good way of living, just being pleasant around the town. Or are we just completely in the matrix or more like black mirror where you just 
pressing buttons and nothing's really happening to you and you're just you got your oculus rift on your head it's a waste of life i don't know i don't know which but it could be both i would imagine that and this is just a guess but riffing off of what you just said there about how you'll get a message from a fan or someone who follows your instagram and they they reach out and what it made me think of is before we all had smartphones or even before we were able to text one another i'm old enough to remember that period it's like when you just had a landline if someone called you and you weren't home, that was it. They weren't like, oh, why isn't Joe immediately answering my phone call? Yeah. But this was before we could even text. So it wouldn't be like, why isn't he responding to my text? <laughs> but now when you can reach someone either through a phone call or a text message whenever, because you know their phone is on them all the time, setting social media aside for a second, when you can reach someone at any period of time, when they don't respond, even if the feeling is involuntary, you can sometimes feel like, why aren't they responding to me? I know they have their phone with them. They need to respond right now. Yeah. And you're saying something by not saying something immediately. <laughs> right. right. The silence becomes a message, right? Even if you don't intend it to. So it, it creates a tension where you're just not responding, maybe because you are legitimately busy to the other person. It could feel like you are saying something by not. And then you take social media, especially if you're a public figure, that magnifies that potential tension, that potential response by like 8 million fold. <laughs> because now... Instead of wandering, you know, walking down the street in the 90s and you come across a fan and you say hello or you say hello to the baker, the butcher, the candlestick maker, <laughs> etc. That's a very particular pocket of time in which you interact with people. But now when people can message you on Instagram, Twitter, whatever social media, I would imagine that that can feel like that same thing with texting or with a phone call. It's like you want to make a connection with your fans, but you also realize that the emotional well that you have every day can be depleted and you have to spend it you know, judiciously. But also, how do you navigate with making a connection with your fans and letting them know that you listen to them and care about them and want to connect with them while also realizing that just physically you can't do that all the time? Yeah, and it's nothing personal against anyone yeah. that I'm busy doing this other thing and I'm having a great time. And I mean, this is like shrink talk, I guess, but it's, you know, it's boundaries. Well, it's better help, Joe. Yeah, it's better help. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's my session is almost up. No, but like, uh, you have to make boundaries in general and say, this is where I'm at and it's nothing personal mm. and I'm doing this thing. It also gets the other way where, so when I'm at work, when I'm doing a show, okay, all bets are off. No one's reaching out to me. Okay. I'm in a show. I'm literally doing the show, but almost all the rest of the time, I have to specifically make a boundary. This is for people that I do know. You know, they're, they're going to call me, they're going to text me. I'm going to post something that makes it look like I'm, you know, doing something interesting because that's, this is part of public life, right? You, you go to a new city and you experience the local architecture or something and you explore. So it looks like you're just farting around and having a nice time, but that's, I wouldn't necessarily share that with people, mm. except that I am trying to connect people and say, you know what, we're in Leipzig today and we're going to do a show tomorrow and you should come. And this is, this is all part of the thing. Yeah. Whereas, you know, most other lines of work, you go to work, nobody calls you at work. The boss will not be happy. Nobody comes and interrupts you when you're working at Jiffy Lube. Right. There's a boundary. And this gigging thing, this touring thing, even being in the studio, being in the studio is so much fun. It's great. Mm. It's the best. And you know, what? it's really nice when people drop in and come and listen for a second. It's all really fun, but you still have to be able to say, get the hell out of here, but in a really nice way that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't sound like that. Yes. That's really hard. I think that's the biggest, for me, that's the biggest challenge of the modern age because I'm not great at doing that anyway. 
I'm very accommodating and I'm happy for everyone to hang out and whatever. It's all fine. It's all fine. I'll just do my work, you know, from two to six in the morning. Yeah. When everybody can see, you can be checked up on at all times as well. Yes. Like, are you really doing something? Are you really at work? Oh, I see that you're hanging out with so-and-so at the coffee shop. (laughs) It's, uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The need to compartmentalize and protect against overextension is so important now because it can be so easy to have. It's like that quote from Lord of the Rings, right? To feel like too little butter spread across too much bread. (laughs) It can be so easy to get caught up in that. It feels dry. It tastes dry. There's no butter. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, to begin to wrap us out, Joe, as you prepare for the release of your new album, how does the Joe Sumner of 2022 compare to the one in 2003 as he prepared for the release of Fiction Plane's first album, right? Because that was your first album as a band. This is going to be your first album as a solo artist. How are you similar? How are you different as an artist, as a man? Like, what is the feeling inside as you're about to release this album? So I think the difference is the first Fiction Plane album, that was everything to us. It was 100% what we were all about. We gave everything. We all just, we didn't have any kind of other jobs or outside things. We gave everything to it. And we were signed by a major label and they told us that we were going to be the absolutely biggest band in the world. And we were just going to blaze a trail of glory and jump into it. And I kind of, I was already envisioning like five years down the road, playing a stadium and being strung out on cocaine or whatever, and just struggling through it and like, just, you know, managing to make the gig. And it was a glorious catastrophe and all that kind of stuff. I really kind of had that, I still had that Kurt Cobain mentality to it. Like it's putting everything into this and we're going to go down with the ship but the ship's not going to sink anyway because we're going to grow wings and start flying. That was the general feeling. And then, you know, it gets much more complicated than all of that. And also you realize that burning out in a blaze of glory is a horrible life experience. A bit overrated. Yeah. Yeah. It's massively overrated, like sort of Messiah complex situation. Like you don't want to be that guy. You want to be slightly off to the side and surviving into old age and, you know, enjoying yourself. (laughs) That's really what you want. This album, actually, I completed it last year. Well, actually, you know what? I completed it the year before last, and it was scuppered by the pandemic. I had a whole year of touring booked, and it was it was going to be great. So I come at it with a lot more patience, and I come at it with, I've done the work of creating the thing, and I sincerely hope people love it. But I also, I know that, like, as you read these lyrics back to me from my older work and from the newer work, I understand that the work I've already done has done its bit. It's there, it stands, it exists. It is crystallized in the record and that is enough. Wherever this goes, it's not going to change me as a human being to have it succeed or flop or or whatever. The work is the work and that's how I feel differently now. Back in the day, the old fiction plane days, I looked to my career to be transformative for me as a human being and now I look to it as being the work I've done. Mm. And that's fine. Yeah, it seems like you have a new relationship to your work and how it does or does not define you as a person. Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Don't get me wrong, it's very important to me and I believe in it and I sacrifice many things for it. But it's I'm not on the ride to be changed. I am doing the work and I'm going to change internally and that may manifest in the the wider world. It may not. Mm. 
That's such a lovely sentiment. And, you know, I know you're the guest and I'm not saying what I'm about to say just to be polite. (laughs) I genuinely really enjoyed listening to your music, listening to Sunshine in the Night. And that sentiment that you just expressed, right? Like looking inward, examining the self, it's right there in the lyrics in that album. It is so present. The self-reflexiveness, the consideration, the thinking about the things that you are grateful for and that you love and looking back it's just a constant theme. And it's something that I really related to. And I I think that people will really connect with because I think we all have gone through that. So thank you for sharing that album with me and and letting me listen to it ahead of our conversation. No, of course, as I said, like the work I've done is the thing that makes me worth talking to, I guess. Now, what I mean is, you know, that I don't really have that much to say about just music in general. Mm. I need you to hear where I'm coming from and what I'm doing, especially in the more recent years, you know, before I can really the shit about what kind of amp I use or what direction music should go in. So anyway, I'm really happy that you listened to it and I'm really happy and appreciative that you listened to it with such great intent. Oh, well, thank you. It was my pleasure. Now, usually when I ask this final question, it's quite specific and and I narrow it down to maybe a particular slice of whatever we've been talking about. But I think it's more appropriate in this case to make it a little broader, a little more open-ended and let you answer it in the way that you feel is, is best for you. So, you know, as we're going through 2022 and hopefully coming out of the pandemic and your new album will be released and then you'll be obviously touring with it. I guess my question to you, Joe, is as a musician, as a father, a husband, as a person, right? Moving into 2022 and then 2023, as your music changes, as you change, where would you like to go next? Where do you see yourself going into the future? What are you interested in? What are you curious about? Where do you want to go? Wow. That is more broad than I I remember this question being. (laughs) I was going to say, you know, we should be more sympathetic to the, you know, football players of Northeast London. The empathy question. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, we're done with empathy though. Don't worry about it. It's all, that's that's so old hat. We're moving on <laughs> to greener pastures. Well, we can talk about that too if you'd like. I don't want to throw you off. Yeah, no, I can't stand anybody. They all deserve what they get. <laughs> Kidding. Kidding, guys. Yeah, where do we want to go? Where we go next? Personally, I want to improve my boundary making and being more present, as present as possible. Artistically, I want to create the things that I need to create and no more. In terms of my impact on the world, I would love to promote more empathy. And I'm really interested in the technological and social future that my kids are going to end up in. I want us to really think through what we're doing right now and make sure we're making the right choices so that humanity is sustainable. I want to really explore what that means, like what are the right answers. I was an environmental science student in college, and I uh, got very jaded with what I thought the future was going to be, because it was all doom and gloom. And I am slightly moving past that into, I think there are ways that we can survive, and maybe we don't know what's going to go wrong anyway, but I think it's going to be okay. But we've got to really think about things from first principles and make sure that we're making real decisions, not sort of political or aesthetic decisions about how we feed everybody and how we give people energy that they need and keep people warm and keep people cool and keep people safe and how we protect the forests and how we protect nature and all that kind of stuff. I want us to just really make the right decisions, whatever they might be. And as much as I might've hated those decisions when I was 16. 
Thank you so much for your time, Joe. And I'm so glad that we connected last year on Twitter before I deleted it. (laughs) Because, you know, it's just been a real pleasure listening to your music and getting to know you better through it and through this conversation. And it's just really great to connect with someone who is so empathy focused. And it is so clear when, you know, either just looking at your social media, listening to your music, or just talking to you now. And I say that genuinely. Thank you for being so open and vulnerable both in your work and here today. So thank you so much, Joe, for your time. It's been such a pleasure, Michael. Thank you for everything you do. And uh, I'm glad that I happened upon your podcast back in the day. I don't remember how, but there it was. And it's very nice. So thank you. Tune in May 10th for a conversation with Wild Type Foods co-founder, Justin Kolbeck. Thank you for listening. And wherever we go next, I hope you'll be there too.